good questions. Um, a good question is really powerful. One of the more powerful ones that Christine and I learned about fairly recently is the question, what story are you telling yourself? Um, we're pretty much always telling ourselves a story. We're, we're storied beings. This is, this is how we live. I love watching this with my kids. Kids are always telling themselves a story, and often it has nothing to do with reality, and they're just having fun, right? So I have young children. My youngest is three, and my next youngest is five. And one of the games that they like to play is the daddy monster game. And the daddy monster game means that I'm going to take a blanket, and I'm going to get down on my hands and knees and pull the blanket over my head and crawl around making scary noises trying to catch them, right? And I think most dads play games like this. And, um, and they love it. They ask to play this game. And of course, when you catch them, you pull them under the blanket and you tickle them and it's great fun and all this kind of stuff. But you're crawling around. If they really wanted to get away, they could. And part of the story of the daddy monster is that the best part is getting caught, right? And they'll ask you to play this game. And you watch your kids get a little bit older. And I remember when Hannah and Ethan were six and seven and they started playing make-believe with a lot more detail where they're imagining they're ninjas or spies or um, whatever the case may be, and they, you, you're watching them do things around the house that have no connection to what you can see, but in their imagination, it all makes sense. Now Hannah and Ethan are 8 and 10, almost 9 and 10, and they play Lego, and Lego is the place of imaginative stories. They've built a whole town in Ethan's bedroom, and, um, and filled, with, filled, with, filled, with, filled with people who all have names and stories and backgrounds. They've built a church with Pastor Lance, who preaches a sermon every Sunday. Um, there's been earthquakes in their town, like they have disaster relief and just all kinds of stuff. And we love these kind of imaginative games. As we get older, we don't stop telling ourselves stories. We just tend to make them more realistic. And not, that's not even the right word, realistic, because often they're complete garbage. Um, but <laughs> they're, they hew closer to what is possible in reality, right? We're not pretending we're ninjas anymore. Well, maybe you are. That's kind of fun. But uh, for the most part, that's not how we tell ourselves stories anymore. We tell ourselves stories that try to create meaning for our day-to-day -day life. And sometimes um, they're stories like, you know, I've got to make my way in the world, and I've got to prove myself, and, and I know that I'm disadvantaged, and I'm going to have to work twice as hard as anyone else to get half as much, but I'm going to prove it anyway, and this becomes a story, and it directs your life. Sometimes the stories are smaller than that. You have the story that you're the guy in the neighborhood who has all the tools. You're the tool guy, right? And that, that's part of your story, and when something new comes out, you immediately want that new thing, not because you need it, but because it fits with your story, because this is part of your identity. I remember we got to teach English in South Korea, and um, in South Korea, everybody lives in apartments, and we lived on, was it the 8th or the 10th floor um, of an apartment building, right next to a, quite a large street, because most of the streets are quite large, and you could look across the street, and there was a church with like a neon cross and all these lights on it, and you could see other neon lights down the street, and the traffic is going, and one day I was standing on like the little balcony that you have in your apartment, looking out over the neon lights and the traffic, and there was this moment of like, and this isn't necessarily a good thing, but I was like, I should have a glass of whiskey and be like standing here like you're in this, like there's this picture, it's just all of a sudden there was this picture in my head of this, like this is what it should look like. And it was a story. It was like this is kind of that, 
cool downtown, like standing on your deck while the world goes by, looking out at all the lights, sipping on your whiskey. It's like, I don't even know where that came from. It was just all of a sudden in my head. Um, and we get these kind of stories implanted in us. Recently, another personal story, Christine and I, we were in a very busy couple weeks, and, um, and I felt like we were barely you know, treading water, like you're where the water's threatening, to, you're getting tired, and it's like, and then you sink a little bit, and you paddle really hard, and you're trying to get up, and that's what life felt like, like we were hardly able to keep track with the things we had to do, let alone anything else, and work is piling up around the house, and around the yard, and all this is going on, and I started getting really frustrated, and uh, one day I, I lashed out at Christina, and she asked the question, what's the story you're telling yourself? And the story I was telling myself was that I was in this alone, that, that I was the only one trying to keep us afloat, that I was doing all the work and nobody else was noticing that I was close to drowning and nobody else was helping and we were all falling apart because I couldn't do it all by myself. Now, this was a total lie. Everybody else was working just as hard as I was, especially Christina. But because I was telling myself this story, I started to act on it and I started to feel on it, Right? Um, and so this is what I mean when I say that we are storied creatures. In small, silly ways, like standing on a balcony, all the way up to like ways that deeply affect our relationship, to the kind of bigger stories that we tell ourselves. Um, you know, I got to make my own way in the world. Some people's bigger stories are like really debilitating. Stories about how I don't matter, or nobody cares about me, or there's nothing I can do that will make a difference. Right? And we start living out of those stories, and they're awful. Now, you may not have noticed this over the last several weeks of the sermon series that we're doing, and today's the last of this three-part series, but we've been, I've been, reframing stories. So we often walk through the experience of waiting for God, and that's where we started in this sermon series, and what I wanted to do in that sermon was to reframe our experience of waiting, to say, look, you're waiting for a person, and therefore the waiting is affected by that person and by your relationship, and you need to reframe how you experience this around the character of God and our relationship with God. And that should change how you experience waiting, right? Just as the way I framed our period of busyness and trying to keep up with things in a way that changed my experience, it made me frustrated, it made me angry, and it made me feel alone, that wasn't because of what was happening around me, it was because of the story I told myself with what was happening. The story we tell ourselves waiting for God changes how we experience it. Last week we talked about listening to God. And the story you tell yourself when it comes to hearing God changes your experience. If you believe that God doesn't speak to you, you've told yourself a story that's going to limit your experience and how you respond to things and what you look for and what you aim at. And so I tried to tell a story where I said, look, God loves you and he is a God who speaks and he does want to speak to you and you can learn and listen and grow in your ability to hear God. And that's a different story. That's a story of a potential path forward that you can take if you want to. Right? It opens up the right story, the right framework, opens up possibilities to you. Today, we're going to do the same thing around obedience. And this is where we step into a big picture story, where Jesus, in the passage that we're going to read today from Matthew 24, he tells us a parable at the end of this passage in verses 45 to 51. And this parable is meant to reframe our experience of life as a whole. It's meant to become a guiding story. 
one of several that Jesus gives us. It's not the only one, okay? So we're going to look at this story, and I'll point out, like, there's other pieces of our identity that God gives us as story, but this is one of the key ones. And so if you have your Bibles, if you've got your phone, you want to look at it there, it will be on the screen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24 today, and we're going to be reading from verses 36 to verse 51. And so I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We do this every Sunday, and I hope you never get sick of me explaining it, because if you're here and you're new, you need the explanation, and if you've been here for years, you know what I'm going to say right now. Um, or, you know, I've only been here for six months, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> we, we stand to honor the Word of God. Um, this is a gift from God that we have this Word, and we hold it in high regard. It is the best thing you're going to hear from me today when I read you this Word. It's also an opportunity for you to participate in what we're doing. So the word of the Lord from Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. You may be seated and let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word. Open our ears and our eyes now to hear and to see you, to meet you in this place and experience your presence, to hear your word and obey. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's give you some context here. Um, the passage I started in verse 36, but no one knows, or but about that day. You know that this is part of a long dialogue when the first things he says is but, but I didn't want to read the whole of Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, um, they're in Jerusalem, and they've just come out of the temple in Jerusalem. And the disciples look around at the buildings and they're amazed. They're stunned. And you have to understand, like the temple, even the second one built, which is what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the one Solomon built because that was destroyed. It's been rebuilt. It's, it's stunning. It's an amazing work of architecture. Some of the stones in its foundation were as big as a house. Like it was a, it was a huge undertaking to rebuild the temple. And it was an amazing piece of architecture. 
And so naturally, as the disciples look, they are amazed. They're like, look at this. And then in the midst of their amazement, Jesus says something that's almost unbelievable. He says, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And to speak this to his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, and whatever other disciples are around to hear him, this would be like, what? Like the temple is massively important. It's the center of Jewish religious practice in this day and age. Um, and to even imagine something with, with rocks that big being taken apart, like what is going to happen? And he goes on for the first 35 verses of Matthew chapter 24 to talk to them about what is going to happen. And it did happen. This is one of the amazing things. Jesus lays out, he says, look, there's going to be wickedness and there's going to be strife and there's going to be fighting and you're going to see the abomination um, that causes desolation that's spoken of through the prophet Daniel. And this is a reference to when pagans go into the Holy of Holies in the temple um, and, and make pagan offerings there. And uh, this had happened once before, hundreds of years before this time. It happens again. Because what actually happens is that in AD 66, so quite a while after Jesus dies, um, the nation of Israel rebels against Rome. And they have some initial success because the way that the Roman Empire worked, they, they can't keep enough soldiers to quell a whole nation in rebellion in every nation they've conquered. Um, they just don't have that. They have to keep their armies kind of on the frontier, continuing to expand their territory, continuing to defend their borders. So there's Roman garrisons throughout Israel, but when the nation rises up in rebellion, they're able to defeat the small number of Romans who are present. And it takes a couple years. We're not talking about days when they had you know, trains and planes and automobiles. This is back in the days of horses and chariots and messages carried by hand. And so it takes a couple years for the Roman army to mobilize and crush the rebellion. But they do crush the rebellion. And in AD 70, they destroy Jerusalem. And they take the temple apart. And not one stone is left on another. Um, and the Romans do what they do to everyone else who rebels, which is they crush them underneath the heel of their boot. And the signs that Jesus lays out in Matthew 24, they all happen. And they're, they're there for the people who are living in that time who could have seen and remembered what he said and responded accordingly. He tells them to flee to the hills. He tells them to get out of there. But as he's talking about this in Matthew 24, he also begins to talk about another day that is to come. So he's talking about two days that are to come, the destruction of Jerusalem that happens in AD 70 and the return of the Son of Man, Jesus, his return, which hasn't happened yet. 2,000 years later. And when we pick up in verse 36, he's shifting gear. He's been talking to them about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he tells them, he says, look, this generation will not pass away before these things have happened. And he's right. It's about 35 years later, that, because this is roughly speaking, maybe 40 years later, that the temple is destroyed. And then he says, but about that day, the day of the Son of Man's return, nobody knows. He's given you all these signs about the destruction of Jerusalem. This day, you should see coming. And they could have. Anyone who's paying attention could have seen it coming. But about that day, the day of the Son of Man's return, that day you won't see it coming. 
You won't be able to figure that one out. No one knows about that day, only the Father. And, and this is one of the points he makes repeatedly as he begins to tell these stories. He talks about the story of Noah and all the other people. None of them know what's coming. None of them know what's going to happen. He talks about a man who owns a house and a thief is going to come and steal. He says, if you knew when that was going to happen, you'd stop him. But you don't. That's the whole point. The thief doesn't announce it. <laughs> you don't find a little note on your door. Going to rob you tonight, 1035. Be ready, right? Like that's not how thieves work. And then he talks about, and this is the one I was referring to as the story that's meant to become a framework for our lives. He talks about a, a master who has gone on a journey and you don't know when he's going to come back. And he's given you a charge in the meantime of how to be taking care of his household while he's away. But you don't know when he's going to return. And in all of these cases, the, the point is the same. Like You don't know when this is going to happen. You just know that it is. So be ready. And readiness in these stories is a matter of obedience. Readiness, and this is where that third story becomes key, because the first two are making the point, you don't know when it's going to happen. That's, that, those are the point of talking about Noah and the flood and talking about a thief coming in the night to your home. You don't know when it's going to happen. But the, the question that that always begs is, okay, so what do I do? right? And for some of those, like, we know what you do about the thief in the night. You lock your doors and your windows, maybe you get a security system, etc., etc. Like, or you ask a neighbor to watch your house if you're going to be away and stuff like this, right? Like, we know what to do in that situation. What do we do when we're waiting for the Son of Man? Well, the third parable, the third story, is where we get that answer. Jesus is saying, you need to be a faithful and wise servant. That's what you need to do. How do you wait well? How do you be ready? You be a faithful and a wise servant. And the answer to what that looks like is embedded in the question itself. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant who the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? What does it look like to be faithful and wise? It looks like being obedient to your duty. It looks like doing what you have been tasked to do in the master's absence and running things well until he returns. In this case, the image is of a servant who is in charge of servants. So you're, you're imagining a household structure, right? And there's a bit of a hierarchy. Different people have different specific jobs, but then they have managers or supervisors who are there to make sure that they can do those jobs. And that's, that's the right position of a manager. They're not there for themselves. They're not there to lift themselves up or to be higher. They're a servant of the servants right? Their, their job is to make sure that these other servants can do their job. And so that whole thing reflects back on you. A faithful and wise servant is the one who is about this. And the picture that Jesus gives in this story, they're quite extravagant, both to the good and to the bad, right? And you probably noticed that because this story does not end on a high note. <laughs> it doesn't end with like a woohoo, it ends with a wow, that sounds harsh. Um, but he's picturing, he says, this is what, you, what you're to do. The question is, are you going to do it? And what's going to happen as a result? So blessed is the servant who's found by his master doing what he has been told to do. Blessed is the one who is obeying his master. And, and then what he goes on to say, and this is just as extravagant. We often don't notice it, though, because that last part kind of takes our breath away. Um, I tell you the truth. 
he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. The master returns and he finds the faithful, obedient, wise servant doing what he's been told and he rewards him by putting him in charge of his whole household. That's huge. Like that is an extravagant gift to give to a servant who has done his job. On the other hand, what if this servant is wicked? And he says, my master is taking a really long time. We all know these kind of thoughts, right? Like, oh, I can get away with some stuff now. Maybe if you don't think that way now, you did at some point when you were growing up. <laughs> I, my oldest daughter, Hannah, went through a series of like, at first, she just did the things she wasn't supposed to. And then she would start like peeking around the corner to see if you were paying attention. Because if you were paying attention, then maybe she wouldn't do what she wasn't supposed to do. But if you weren't, then she... And so we would see her. We would see her do this around the corner, and you knew she was about to do something she wasn't supposed to do. So we would get up and go check on her. Well, so she figured out that wasn't working, so she would just start doing the things she wasn't supposed to do and then yell at us from the other room, don't worry, I'm not doing anything dangerous. It's like, that's what you want to hear from your three-year-old. Really? Okay. We all go through those, and lots of us struggle with this as adults, where like you're on the job, and you're, you're not being watched, and you can get away from, with things, and you have to wrestle with that temptation. And here in this story, Jesus says, suppose the servant is wicked. He says, my master is taking a long time, and he starts to try to get away with things. Instead of caring for his fellow servants, and feeding them, and equipping them to do all the work that they're supposed to do, he starts beating them. And instead of giving to them the supplies that are meant to go to them for the purpose of the running of the household, he goes off with his friends and he parties and he gets drunk. And now the master returns. And instead of finding a wise and faithful servant who's been obedient and whom he can bless, he finds a wicked servant who has taken advantage of his absence. And this is where that harsh ending comes in. He says, he will cut him to pieces, assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's quite the image of extravagant punishment. And the issue, the question in this story, is was the servant obedient or not? Now, I've said I think this story is meant to become a framing narrative for us today. Why do I say that? We still live in the same place as the disciples who initially heard this. Jesus is coming back, and we don't know when. We just know that he is. And so the question is, how do you live well and ready in the meantime? And the answer is the same. We, like the characters in this story, are servants. We are stewards of all that we have been given. Nothing we have is our own. It is all a gift from God. This is true of our time. It's true of our talents, it's true of our resources, it's true of the people in our lives. We just dedicated Wyatt this morning and recognized that he and all children are a gift from God. They're not ours, they're his. When you're raising a child, you are a steward. When you're taking care of the money that you have have earned through the gifts and time that God has given you, you're a steward. You are a servant in charge of a portion of your master's household. And you are called, we are all called to be faithful and wise in that position. And that's where we can start to say, this is part of my life story. This is who I am. I am a servant of God who has been gifted with the things of God and the people of God and charged with doing well the master's business. 
with doing well the things that God has called us to be about in this world. That is the place of obedience. And I know that just like hearing God, I started by talking about how when we, we talk about hearing God, some people think you're crazy. You say, God spoke to me, and they say, mm-hmm. Obedience is often looked down upon as well. We don't want to be obedient. We want to be independent. We don't want to be commanded by other people. We want to be our own bosses, right? If, if you're married and you're too obedient to your spouse, your friends may make fun of you and talk about how you're being weak, um, obedience is this kind of like, yes, it's for dogs and children, but for the rest of us, we've grown up past that. Well, that's the world's story, and it's a lie. It's not the story we've been given by Jesus. The truth of the matter is, we are all serving something, or someone, or several someones, or several somethings. You can't actually avoid that. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you can't serve both God and money right? Um, And he lists these as your options, not because those are your only two, but they're two of the most common. It's very tempting to serve money. That's another big narrative. The actual, like we talk about being independent and we talk about, you know, being our own boss. Usually what we really mean is we just want a lot of money so we can do whatever we want to do, but then we're serving money, which is a very deathly, deadly, death-giving place to be. Money does not bring life. Money flattens and kills. Not that money is bad. As a tool, it's a great gift. As a gift from God that you seek to steward, it can be really good and life-giving. But as a master, there's nothing there but death. So let's talk about obedience then. That's the name of the sermon this morning, is obeying God. This is what Jesus is calling us to in this story. If you really buy into this story, that you're a servant who's been given the job of stewardship of the master's things to be about the master's business until the day that he returns, then our highest calling in the midst of that is obedience. Now, we talked about hearing God. There was way more to say than I could say. There's way more to the topic of hearing God than I could go over last week, though I still try to do a lot. We had nine points. Um, This morning, we talk about obeying God. There's way more there than I can talk about. Um, I'm going to talk through three things. Living in the narrative Jesus gives us, being obedient to what we know, and growing in our understanding of our master and his business so that we can become better servants, so that we can become more obedient. These are the starting points. The first starting point is the one we've been talking about all morning so far, which is what narrative are we living? Narratives matter. They form our questions They shape our options. They determine which paths we see as open before us. They define success and failure. And all of these things affect the ways that we live. And so one of the questions that we actually need to ask ourselves is what story are we living? What's the story you're telling yourself? Most of us, when it comes to life stories, are fairly unreflective. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just not something we do. We don't think through our life narratives. They're given to us. They're given to us by culture. They're given to us by family. They're given to us by entertainment. They're given to us in workplaces. And for the most part, we just absorb them. And and we throw some of them out and we refuse some of them. But it's not a process where we've sat down and said, what is the story I'm living? What are the advantages and disadvantages of this story? Do I want to keep it? Like, we don't do that. We just find ourselves living stories somehow. And, um, and often we don't even know where they came from. And so I do want to say a few things about how do you actually do this? 
How do you actually begin to live into a different story? Because if it's something, and I think it is for most of us that we've done unreflectively, me telling you to live in a different story is kind of like saying, go fly. It's like, uh, what? <laughs> I don't think I can do that. Um, so how do we do that? How do we actually live into a narrative? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, it is a process. It's a training thing. It's, it's, it's the same way you learn anything in your life, one step at a time, little bit by little bit, piece by piece, and slowly you begin to get it. We know this about everything else. You, you take gymnastics, you don't immediately start doing like triple flips and swirls and all this kind of stuff. And if you tried to, probably your last gymnastics class, spend a little while in the hospital and then never go back. No, the, you start by learning how to balance and you learn how to, your body movements and these kind of things. And you have an instructor who tells you a little bit like, okay, that was good, but try it like this. And here's how you be safe. And and we know this about everything else we learn, that it's gradual and that we're going to make mistakes and that it requires intention. You don't accidentally wake up a gymnast one day. Um, that would be really neat, <laughs> but it doesn't happen that way. You don't accidentally, and this is where we get tricked, because we feel like we've accidentally woken up with narratives, like we accidentally woke up with a story. You didn't. It was built into you for decades, and you just didn't realize it by your parents, by the TV, by whatever, right? Like there's stories that get thrown at you all the time. And that's the process that you've walked through. You've just done it without thinking about it. It's not that it hasn't happened. So how do we step back from that and step into another narrative? Well, it's gonna be a journey and it's gonna be some wrestling. Know that before you get started. Some of the practical steps you can take. You have to take the places where you're already intentional and add the narratives of Jesus. Or you have to create new places of intention and add the narratives of Jesus. So where do we automatically do that? One of the key ones is decisions. Every time you set down to make a decision where you actually have to think about it, okay? So we make decisions all the time, we don't think about it. They just, you just go. But when you're actually thinking about a decision, you're debating something, you're weighing pros and cons, even if it's just for a few minutes, you can begin to bring to bear the questions of the narrative of Jesus. How does the call of stewardship fit into this decision? What difference does it make that this is all of God's stuff and not mine? What difference does the mission of God make here? How do I be a faithful and wise servant in this decision? And sometimes that's going to feel silly. Got to buy a lawnmower. How do I be a faithful and wise steward? And you're going to be like, what? But it actually is a good question. And you start to think it through and you realize like, okay, this is a question about how I use my money and how I use my time and how I take care of God's creation. And those are all important. And I'm not trying to paralyze you, right? You're not, I'm not trying to make a 10-minute decision take three weeks. <laughs> I'm just trying to say that when you're already thinking it through, you can redirect some of those questions into this story. So that's a place where you're already intentional. What about a place where you can build intention? Reflection is really good for this. So many of us are... I struggle with this. You just live through the week, you live through the days, and you just keep going because you already have a story in your head and you're just going to run with it. But if you take time, maybe every week, to look back and say, okay, what were some of the decisions I made? How did I make those? What were some of the things I counted as good in my life this week? Why were those good? Um, where was God? Right? And the goal is not to feel guilty. So you get to the end of the week and you're like, I don't know where God was. I wasn't even thinking about him. Okay, that's a wake-up call. God's not after you to shame you. He's after you to bring him to himself because he loves you. 
Um, and so then you say, okay, what can I do this week that's going to be different? Help me remember that I'm on the master's business, right? And you're beginning to ask these questions and be intentional. Another place you're already intentional is evaluating success. But what you count as success and failure is determined by your story. So what looks like success from the perspective of this story? Was I serving? Was I stewarding? Um, was I aware of the call of God in my life and acting accordingly? Those are successes. And they're such a radically different measure of success than most of the world's measures of success. You might, as a faithful steward of God, end up losing money because you gave generously to someone. That's success because in the economy of God, we're called to be generous. You might end up looking at the week and thinking, where did all my time go? And then you're like, oh, wait, there were people in need in my life. I didn't get everything done I wanted to this week. All my tasks aren't finished, but look who I was able to love. Well, that's success from the perspective of the kingdom of God. Um, and where you, where you begin to see the fruit of this, if you're going to be intentional about this, is when your explanations begin to reflect the stories of Jesus. Why did you do that? Well, because it's God's stuff. I wanted to take care of it. Like when, when you're asked that, why, did you, why do you give to people like that? You know he's just going to waste it. Yeah, but I wanted to show him God's love. Why didn't you? Right? That's another great question that you can, be, you can start. And your explanations start to flow out of this story. So those are some beginning points to living into the narratives of Jesus. Now let me remind you, I said this earlier, this is not the only story. The only story that we're given by God is not that we are faithful servants, called to be faithful and wise servants. We're also beloved children. Right? We're talking about our identity when we talk about these stories. And Jesus tells us that we are God's children whom he loves deeply, independent like, of our success and our failure. And like, while we're still sinners and enemies, he dies for us. You can't lose the love of God. You can't find yourself in a position of having messed up so badly that God is finished with you. That's not what it means to be a beloved child, right? This is part of our story. There's lots of other pieces to that story, the story of who we are to one another as a church, for example, um, and the story of what God is about in the world. So we can talk about God being a God of, of blessing and creation, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes when we get to the third point. So live the narrative. Secondly, be obedient to what you know. This is a pretty simple question. If we do adopt the narrative that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 24, the immediate question we can ask is, am I obedient to what I know of God? And this isn't a question of, do I know enough? You don't, and none of us do, and there's always places to grow. But the issue isn't what you know. It's, are you obeying what you know? Jesus gives the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. God meets you where we're at. Everyone in this room is in a different place in terms of how much we know of God and about his work in the world and about his commands for us. And the question that God asks each of us is not, do you know everything? Because you can't and you never will but what are you doing with what you have been given? It's a pretty like, simple question in the sense of, we know the answer. And the follow-up question to that, or the follow-up task to that, is do the next right thing. Um, whatever that is. 
And you may find yourself in a position where you're really not sure. That happens, where you're obeying as much as you know. Often people who are early in their faith walk, they know, you know, they've been told they should pray and read their Bible and come to church. So they're praying and they're reading their Bible and they're coming to church. And then the best thing, and there are people in this room who've done this, who then say, what else? What's next? What do I, like, there's more. I know there's more. There is, there's more. And that's a great place to be because then you get to explore and you get to search it out and you get to have the joy of deepening um, in what you're doing. And that's where we come. I know the second point was really fast because it is a pretty straightforward question. Do what you know. Obey what you're aware of. When you get to the end of that, we come to the third point, which is learning more of our master's business so that we can deepen in our obedience because that's the walk that we're called to. Are we seeking to learn more about our master and about his business so that we can be more obedient? There's this great passage in Luke chapter 17, and it seems at first glance to be a strange one. Jesus is telling another parable. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper? Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. It seems like an odd word from Jesus, um, but he's making a clear point about service, which is that the best servants do not only do what they're told. They know enough about their master and about his business to anticipate, to go above and beyond, to know that when they've come in from the fields, it's time to get dinner ready. And, and you don't have to wait till you're ordered to do that. You just go from one thing to the next because you get it. You understand. You know what is necessary for the smooth running of this household. And your heart is in the same place as the heart of your master. So you work hard for the run smooth running of that household, doing the things that you're able to do and not just standing there doing nothing until you get a direct order, right? This is a picture of growth in service. And in a lot of ways, and we don't, again, we don't like these words. We don't like the word servant and obedience and submission It is another key one that we don't like. But we do this with the people we love. You think about your parents or your children or your spouse or good friends. You're not a friend to them and just wait till they tell you everything. You're always anticipating. You're always trying to show, you don't say like, I'm only going to get you a birthday present if you order me to and tell me exactly what you want, right? You want to show them that you love them. Um, I know I try to do this with Christina, like try to tell when it, I think she's going to want tea and start making her tea and check if she wants some and try to like do the things that are helpful without her having to tell me, right? This is the same picture we're getting here around the position of servant, around that narrative. A loving servant, a servant who does this well is, yes, at the start of the journey, they're just obeying orders because that's all they know, right? That's a new servant's position and that's okay, no wise and faithful master, and that's who God is, is going to look at the new servant and be upset that all they're doing is obeying orders. However, if you've been a servant in the household for 20 years, that master would probably have a right to expect you to have grown beyond that point. And that's the call for us, is not just to obey what we know, but to get to know more so that our obedience can deepen. So these are the starting points 
for obeying God, to live in the narrative Jesus has given us, to obey what we know, and to deepen that knowledge. And we look forward to, and we know this is true now, and we are called to live into it, but I certainly look forward to, and I I hope you do too, the day when Jesus looks at us and says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. This is from John 15, you are my friends if you do what I command, but I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, and hear this, this is true of each of us, you did, and this is Jesus' words, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Isn't that a great calling that we each share to bear everlasting fruit for the kingdom of God? To have such a relationship with God that when we ask things of Him, we receive, not so that we can have whatever we want, but because our hearts are so in line with God's. And then he concludes by saying this, this is my command, right? We come back to the beginning, you're my friends if you do what I command. This is my command, love each other. To live in the love of God here and now. So I guess my charge is to live in obedience to this command, and to learn the master and his business so that you can live in obedience to more and more of his ways and his mission in the world. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word and your goodness. I thank you for the call to obedience. I thank you that we are stewards and servants, and what a place to be given, Lord. What, what meaning and grace and gift you've given us that we aren't living in a story where we don't matter and we don't make a difference, and we're not living in a story where we have to prove ourselves because you'll only love us if we're good enough, but we're living in a story where you have trusted us and called us and work with us to fulfill those things. Be with us and fill us with your Holy Spirit to do just that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.